we're going to start out um, with a statement. And I, I like to do this sometimes when, when we have the opportunity to, to be together. And it's the, the big thought, the idea behind what we're going to unpack today. And this is a really different message. And I, it really is a different message. And, um, and it's not really done yet. It's kind of unresolved. And this is the big statement. We all have a disposition to dualism in our hearts. Let me repeat that. We all have a disposition to dualism in our hearts. What, what does that mean? What is dualism? I'm going to try to make it as simple as you can, but I'm still trying to get my arms around it. But dualism is simply this. It's, it's when a person says, okay, this is, these are my beliefs. This is what I believe. This defines me. And yet, at the same time, the way they live out their life does not match up to what they say they believe to be true. They're not congruent. It's when we say, this is what I believe, and this is how I live, but they're not in harmony with one another. How we actually tend to live is very different from what we say we believe. That's dualism. When our belief and behavior are not in sync, that's dualism. And when they aren't in sync together, where what we say and what we do are not congruent, it confuses people. Now, this is not unusual, uh, this, this theme, and I want you to know, I'm going to say up front, we all struggle with dualism. We're going to need to own that. Paul, in his letter <laughs> in Romans, he's got this segment of verses together that have always struck me odd, and I'm going to read them to you, and then you'll understand dualism. Okay, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but I do what I hate, I do. I do what I do not want to do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. <laughs> There's like 21 do's in there, okay? And he goes on to say, for in my inner being, in my heart, my mind, and spirit, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And then he says, what a wretched man I am. I read that and it makes me laugh. I just want to grab him and say, Paul. But pull yourself together. Knock off the coffee. Cut back on the Mountain Dew, all right? Because, dude, you're all over the page. But this isn't just some wannabe or some young believer. This is Paul. Paul who wrote, wrote, okay, at least half of the New Testament, somewhere between 13, 14 books that he wrote of the 27 in the New Testament. And what he's talking about is this battle that we have to want to do what is right and ultimately doing what's wrong. This battle within the soul. And he's not alone uh, in this concept. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this, 
There are sinful desires inside you, and they wage war against your soul. The basic human problem is at the soul level. In another epistle, the author, James, in his epistle says, uh, uses a very interesting word, and he uses it twice, and it's the only place that you will find it uh, in Scripture. In James 1, verse 8, he says, A double-minded man is unstable in all he does. And then three chapters later, in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Wash your uh, hands, you sinners, and purify you, your hearts, you double-minded and the way that would be translated is this. You have a heart that is kind of cut in half. You have a double soul. Literally, it means you have a fractured soul. And the picture in that, in James, is a picture of a person who, who does what is right sometimes, but is torn by the desire to do otherwise. It's like, uh, I don't know how many of you guys have kids <laughs> that you taught how to drive, and they're a little apprehensive, so they've got a foot on the brake and the foot on the accelerator. And if you've ever ridden with someone like that, you're going, boom, 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 boom. And, and my dad told me, knock it off. And that's what happens when you're dualistic. You're, you're not sure which to press. When your beliefs and behavior are not aligned, what you're doing is straddling the fence, and you're going to rip your britches. That's how it plays out. That's dualism. One man said it this way, when my will is consistently, freely, joyfully aligned with what I most deeply value, my soul finds rest. That is wholeness. When I live with half-hearted devotion, my soul is always stressed and strained. Now, what I'm sharing with you is, is from two different books, and they actually overlapped for me. And uh, one is Soul Keeping by a guy named John Orberg, one of my favorite authors. And the other is a new author, new to me anyway, and his name is Stephen Garber. And he wrote a book called The Seamless Life. I'm going to be... Uh, quoting him a lot, and sometimes I'm going to use his exact words, and I'm telling you that up front. I gleaned from these two books. And Stephen Garber tells the story of a time that he found himself standing in a large circle of people in Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church. And he was part of a gathering for what was to be a holy historic moment, a citywide prayer breakfast where black and white would sit at the table, come to the table together for the sake of unity and for their community. And at one point, he said, we got in this circle and we were holding hands, pre-COVID apparently, and he said, we sang this song, song that most of you, if not all of you know, Amazing Grace, and he said, the line that kept coming back to his mind was this line, I was once blind, but now I see. The funny thing is, maybe not, I shouldn't use the word funny, the interesting thing is, is they were meeting in uh, the church, a church tragically known for the worst of the human condition. The malicious bombing that killed four little girls, if you remember, in that church, if you're from the 60s, during the civil rights tension. 
And he goes on to say, at that moment, I was struck by the irony of history and the ironies of providence written into the song that we were singing. Because he said in that room, in the middle of this room, and it's almost like it was the centerpiece and it wasn't meant to be. He said, we were singing this song and there's this glass case and in the glass case, there's a model of a ship, but not just any ship. It was a model of a slave ship. And it was there in that church, and the purpose was a visual to remember what once was. The reality that every black person in that city was probably a descendant of someone who had been stolen away from the home place in Africa. And they were taken uh, by gunpoint uh, sometimes that night and chained to other, hundreds of others, and then they made their way across what's called the Middle Passage, which is the, the route from um, Britain, uh, from Africa, Africa to America. And those who survived the trip as slave, became slaves in the savannas of these United States. And those who didn't, get this, were probably thrown overboard especially if they weren't doing well, if they were sick and, and they had died, because they were disposable property. In 1997, Steven Spielberg produced a movie that depicted the, this awful and barbaric practice of slavery. And the film is loosely based on a story, a true story of a group of Mende people from Sierra Leone, who in 1839 overpowered their Spanish captors aboard the slave ship called Amistad which is the name of the movie. And there are several powerful and unforgettable scenes of horror, the horrors of slave trade. Parents, be advised, it's graphic, it's horrific, it's not for children. Uh, nearly everyone here knows the, the song Amazing Grace. I've already mentioned it. It was published in 1779. It is most likely the best known uh, hymn in the English language. It was composed by a pastor who lived in a really small community in Britain, and it was written to be used by him to, for a sermon he was going to preach on New Year's Day in 1773. Now, oddly, it remained virtually unknown for over 100 years. And then, it wasn't until the 19th century that it took off in America in Methodist churches, became a, fame, a well-known and favorite hymn for, for Methodists. And it would go on to become one of the most recognizable and celebrated hymns in history. And the guy who wrote, actually it was, it was a poem first and then composed to music, was a guy by the name of John Newton. And John had come to Christ in a unique way. He was 23 years old. He was making a ship, a, a, a voyage back to Britain, and he was on a ship called the Greyhound. He had gone below deck and gone to sleep, and he awoke to find that the ship was in a severe storm off the coast of Ireland. And the, water, the ship was taken on water. It was being battered by the waves, and it was pretty obvious that the ship was going to sink. And so Newton on the top deck, drops to his knees and begins to pray out loud for God's mercy. And almost immediately, the storm started to subside. And John felt, John Newton felt, that God had spared his life, that God had his hand on his life, and he, at that point, gave himself to the ministry of the gospel. 
And he would become a pastor who would have, not just a pastor, but an exceptional pastor, and he'd have this long, distinguished career in ministry. John was a diligent theologian, a faithful servant, a good pastor, and a prolific writer. If you were to Google John um, Newton quotes, you would find a ton of material that would give you a glimpse of this man and of his heart. One of those, some of them you might know, one of my favorites is this one. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. This one I'm going to share on the screen was shared just shortly before he passed away. And he said this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. So I want to say it again. And for good reason, as you will see in just a couple of minutes, John was a, different, a diligent theologian, faithful servant, good pastor, and prolific writer. But John Newton had a second job, a second source of income. You know what that was? John Newton was a slave ship captain. Now, I know what you're thinking, because you've got to be thinking what I was thinking when I read that. I thought... There is no way he could be a part of that. There is no way that the same guy who wrote Amazing Grace could be involved in or be a part of the horrific, horrible, unimaginable profession of slavery. And some of you already in your mind are pushing back, well, Greg, that must have been pre-Jesus, you know, pre pre-conversion. And, and Greg, that would make sense because that line, I was once blind, that's back then, then, and now I see. But no, that was after he came to Christ. Now, you might be aware of another movie uh, that came out in 2006, and this motion picture is, is entitled Amazing Grace. And it's a story, the key guy, the story is uh, William Wilberforce, and he was a, a key figure in politics in Britain at the time. And for many years, he argued, fought, and labored against the slave trade industry in, in Britain. And the film also uh, recounts the experiences of John Newton, Newton as a crewman on a slave ship and his subsequent conversion to Christ. And Newton, by the way, would become best friends with Wilberforce. William was much younger than um, John Newton. And I don't know if you knew this, but John Newton obviously passed away. And William, uh, when he passed away, had his coffin or his cemetery plot right next to his friend John. But I think we would be quick to say, Greg, there's, that's probably, you, you probably got the, st the story wrong. Because John Newton does later in his life tag up with William and he becomes a key part of uh, Wilbur, William Wilberforce's uh, ability to finish and stop the, the slave trade. A lot of times, you know, we want a happy, warm, fuzzy ending. You know, a story that makes us feel good. But this story is still a good story, but... This is weird. How, how does that happen? 
Now, fact is, after he converted to Christ on that, that ship, that slave ship, he actually did step away, some documents say, for, uh, for at least five years. Uh, he didn't, didn't uh, do the slave trade anymore. But he returned to that profession. And he captained. He, he went from a crewman to a captain of a slave ship. I want you to picture this in your mind. We're going somewhere with this, and you're, cause you're probably thinking, this is really a weird message, Greg. I, I'm, I'm just really having a hard track, time following you, and I, I, I don't know how this ends. But I want you to picture this, because this is an accurate account on several, in, in, in several different documents. Slaves are in the belly of this ship, in dark, chained to one another and chained to the ship in deplorable, horrific circumstances that we can't even begin to fathom. And at the same time, John Newton is on the top deck with his officers leading Bible study. That can be, that's well documented. And I, 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 can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't get my arms around that. Do you, do you, like me, have a hard time understanding how that, how does that even happen? Apparently, Newton is seemingly unable to connect his belief with his behavior and his worship with his work, and that's dualism. Garber goes on to say two things that I'm going to share with you, just his words. He said, for a thousand complex reasons of the heart, we, we, we like Newton are disposed to dualism. We too choose incoherence rather than coherence, a fragmented worldview over a, over a seamless way of life. And then he says this, what I thought was really profound. What particularly struck me about the irony of singing Newton's song while in the room with a slave ship model was the sober reminder that the work of thinking Christianly is hard work. We do not come by it naturally. We are all disposed to dualism. We have this mind, we have this, this ability with our minds to carve up our conscience in such a way that we can say, this is what I believe, but this is what I do, and it's okay. And that started in the garden. When the serpent whispered into Eve's ear, did God really say? And that is the lot all of us find ourselves in. That's the temptation coursing its way through each one of our hearts every day on a variety of levels. Getting it right took, was a long pilgrimage for John Newton, perhaps 25 years or longer before he started connecting the dots that these are my beliefs and this is not them. It would be 30 years later that Newton would publicly acknowledge and apologize for, in tears, for his lack of compassion, his deep sorrow. He said, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. 
And in the words of life philosopher, poet, and psychologist Elmer Fudd, be very, very careful. Because it is so easy, isn't it, to be condescending, to be judgmental, to point fingers, to be self-righteous, to look at Newton and say, that guy was really messed up. But I got to confess to you, my own journey, not pre-conversion, post-conversion, has its bad choices and blunders and failures and hypocrisies and poor judgment and shortcomings, and that's just my short list. To learn to see clearly is a long and always difficult work, disposed to dualism as we are. Folks, we don't like to own it. We don't like to admit it. But we are, we are an idolatrous people, twisting our heart and world to make our choices for autonomy more comfortable for us. We will do what we want to do when we want to do it almost always. And John Newton, the good man, the pastor, the student, the theologian, the servant of the living God, it took him 30, dec or 30 years three decades before he realized he was standing on the wrong side of the fence on this one. How does that happen? I mean, how, how, how does that happen? Some time ago, I read that the average person, the average person, get this, forgets 90% of, of the wrong that they do. And the article went on to say that we have this built-in self-protecting mechanism in us that helps us to forget. And it does so to protect us. Because if we constantly had our sin and our stuff in front of us, we would be overwhelmed with our wrongness and our wrongdoing with our sin, and we'd fall into despair. I came across a quote from a book entitled, the honest truth about dishonesty, how we lie to everyone, especially ourselves. And it's written by a Duke professor who was astounded by how widespread people's tendency is to cheat, to be self-centered, to lie, and to be deceitful. And he discovered that we are driven by two motives. First, we want to receive selfish gain. And we want to do so and avoid pain. We want it so much that we're willing to lie, cheat, or deceive for it. We want what we want, and we're willing to cheat to get it. And he said the second preference is, their second motive is this. We want to be able to look in the mirror and think well of ourselves. That means we view ourselves as basically good, honest, and honorable people. That's hilarious. But we do it all the time. Because those two things don't match. It can't be both. And again, that's our word dualism. And the professor wrote these words. He said, this is where amazing, our, our amazing cognitive flexibility comes into play. Thanks to this human skill, as long as we cheat only a little bit, we can benefit from cheating for selfish gain and still view, view ourselves as marvelous people. Now, I was thinking about this <laughs> as I was driving to church. I was trying, can, is there a simple way that we can identify with this? And there is. And I was doing it. How many of you drive, how many of you believe the, the law is right? You should obey the law. Okay, the rest of you, we'll pray for you. 
So we would say, yes, you should obey the law. How many of you, don't raise your hand, you don't have to confess this one, I'll own it. Know that if you go seven or eight miles an hour over the speed limit, you can get away with it because they won't pull you over, and so you do. And so I'm driving, and I'm laughing at myself, and this person passes me, and I'm laughing, and they're looking at me, there's something wrong with that guy. Because I'm going 67, 68 miles an hour on 52. We do it all the time. And we justify ourselves. Now, I'm reading this other book too at the same time that I'm loving, and, and it's John Ortberg, and he's referring to the, this book on lying, right? How we lie to ourselves. And he said it took him longer to read it than he expected because he was at the coffee shop, went to the bathroom, and came back, and somebody stole the book. <laughs> That's hilarious. Ortberg says, who... Who steals a book about being dishonest? <laughs> and when they read it, what did they think about this book? And about dishonest people who would cheat, lie, and steal. That's dualism. It's insane, but it's true. We all struggle with it. I had a tough week this week. On multiple of levels. Because I'm was putting this message together, and I feel I was getting smacked around by the Holy Spirit saying, dude, you're guilty. It was a tough week. And we all struggle with it, me, myself included. I fall and fail more than I care to admit to myself. I've lowered the bar so far that now my prayer is a prayer I came across a long time ago that says, God, help me to become the man my dog thinks I am. Because that's, that's all I got. So what do we do with this? How, what do you, what do I, what do we, how do we respond to this? And three thoughts in, clo in closing. Number one, own it. Own it. Each one of us needs to humbly own it. We all struggle, and we want what we believe to be true and what God has said, and we want to live that out. They need to be in harmony. They need to be aligned. They need to say the same thing. And every one of us here has our own unique story, and every one of us here has a backstory, if not one, many that has impacted us and, and underlined us or underscored us. And we wrestle with it all the time. We all have issues to work with. So you need to own it. And the thing you better do when you own it is this. You better not look at the person next to you or the person on the street and think, well, I'm not, at least I'm not like them. This 18-year-old kid who did so much damage. I don't know what his story is. I, 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 I'm, I'm having a hard time having any, any empathy or any, giving any grace. Only by the grace of God go I. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Own it. Secondly, make room. In the last about 16 days, my uh, mother-in-law had an acute stroke. And so we ended up being in Sioux Falls. We had her move from Milbank to Sioux Falls. And, 
And to be honest, Yvonne called me. Actually, I, I had some things I had to do and I joined her later. But she called and she was teary. She goes, mom's not doing well. And she had a, a brain bleed uh, years before and they think this might have been related to that. They're not sure. But it was a hard, hard couple of weeks. Yesterday, Yvonne was able to take her home and she's 89 years old. She's a tough cuss. And, uh, and she's doing well. We're really grateful. But we were in a hotel room um, that first weekend that she was in the hospital, and we were going to watch a service in C Seattle, a church there, because my son Josh was going to give the message. And right before the message, they had this song, and I'd never heard this song. And, and I, I love the song. And it was called Make Room. And so here's some of the lyrics. Here, here is where I lay it down, every burden, every crown. Here is where I lay it down, every lie and every doubt. This is my surrender. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want me to. This is my surrender. Shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the walls of all my religion. Your way is better. To do whatever you want to, this is my surrender. You need to make room for God to work in you. There is no bandwidth for his voice when you are busy and in a hurry. You're fooling yourself if you think you can get God on the fly. If you're distracted, trying to juggle a variety of projects at once, if you've got activity after activity after activity, you will not hear his voice. You need to be still. You need to give God room, space to do what he wants to do in you. Make room. And then finally, the third thing I want to just say is this. He's got you. He, he's got you. When you placed your faith and trust in Christ, the, the slate was wiped clean. And I, I, it, the slate was not only wiped clean, it was smashed. Your sins will be remembered no more. But that's not just what is behind you and not just what you're in. That is a projection of the future. God's got you. And at that moment, God began to do a good work in you and, and, and he's going to carry it on to completion, which simply means he's in it with you for the long haul. A verse I shared a couple of weeks back is this. There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that God, that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish. God's got you. Lean into that. Lean into that. Embrace that. Hold on to that. It's true. Grace always amazing, slowly, slowly makes its way in and through us. That's how it works. And what happens is everything comes together and we start, we, we start to have this, this tapestry, if you please, of God doing a work within us. The Hebrew, the Hebrews had a word for it. It was called avoda, a wonderfully right, right word that means this. At one time and the same time, that <laughs> avoda means labor, life, and liturgy. Your work your, your life as a person, and your worship. And that's the, word, the world we're supposed to live in. 
But right now in this very now but not yet moment of history, we stumble forward. Let's just admit that. Asking for the grace to be able to connect our beliefs with the way that we live in the world. Over time, over time, grace found Newton. Newton thought he'd always found grace. No, grace found Newton. And grace will find you and do what it did for him, transforming him heart and mind so that he now could see. Let's make that true of us. Let's make that true of all of us. Let's pray. Dualism, Father, we all struggle with it. At multiple levels, multiple times every day. And if we're honest, when we go the wrong way, we lie to ourselves and we say it wasn't that bad. But you don't lower the bar, and the bar is be perfect as I am perfect, and that, that, that's hard to do. It's impossible to do, and that's why we need you. I pray, Father, that we would own dualism, own it in our lives, that we'd make room for you, that we'd make room for you, and, Father, that we would lean into you. Help us to live out this wonderful thing called grace that you've given us that has changed our lives. We are grateful, and we say thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great week.